Back in 2010, noted atheist Sam Harris put out an infographic that supposedly showed all of the contradictions of the Bible. This graphic right here, which you can't see very well, uh, it, it made a huge splash on social media. It even made it into news outlets. The way you read the graph is the very bottom, those little tiny white and gray lines, those are the 1,189 chapters of the Protestant Bible, going left to right from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. All of the arcs, and I have no idea what's up with this projector because that looks purple. It's supposed to be red. But all of those red arcs are then the contradictions between various chapters of the Bible. So trying to show you all of the, the connections and, and that, there were, I think, like 439 contradictions that they said existed. Many skeptics, when they saw this, they just were elated. I mean, this was like visual representation of just how fictitious the Bible is, that it is just a man-made work. It is not this word of God that everyone says. And man, what damning evidence do you need? Many Christians saw this and were like, oh my goodness, I, I had no idea that there were that many contradictions in the Bible. And like this caused their faith to crumble. But within just a few days, I'd even say probably within even in a few hours, some feedback began to come back about this graphic. The first bit of feedback was that this graphic looked a lot like this graphic which was put together by a group of Christians showing all of the cross-references between different chapters of the Bible. There's like 62,000 some cross-references where one Bible author refers to a different Bible author and, and, and all, all of that. And, and so finally, Sam Harris admitted, yes, 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 this was kind of our inspiration. But then it turns out there was more feedback. One was that their whole entire chart was built off of the King James Version. They said they used the King James because it was the most well-known and most read version of the English Bible. However, the last version of the King James came out in 1769. There has been a ton of a Bible scholarship that has taken place since 1769. Things like the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many, many, many manuscripts being found. Archaeology, some, having some of its greatest discoveries ever. Just the overall scholarship has continued to improve. And so some of the things that were contradictions actually have been explained away because of just basic biblical scholarship. But also, there were some fellow skeptics, fellow atheists, that looked at Sam's chart and got really, really bothered. Because as they began to dive in, they began to discover that some of the things that Sam and his graphic artist said was a, um, uh, a contradiction, even they said, oh, that, that's not really a contradiction. And it angered them because they felt that it's, this actually weakened their argument. Because they're convinced that the Bible is fictitious, and yet here's Sam putting out something saying, well, look at this contradiction. And even in fellow atheists is going, oh, Sam, that, that's not a contradiction. Um, you're making us look bad. Like, we've got far better evidence. You don't need to throw something like that in. And so they found themselves really, really frustrated. But probably most unsurprisingly, the greatest amount of feedback came from Christian pastors, theologians, apologists, because they looked at so many of Sam's contradictions and said he clearly does not understand literacy. He, like, he's not even applying just basic principles of biblical hermeneutics, of biblical interpretation. And so they, they were able to wash so many of them away. So you would think 
that this would cause people to go, oh, wow, then the Bible is absolutely true. Because, I mean, after all, if you went to Project Reason, Sam Harris's uh, nonprofit website, there's no site anymore. All you see is a square with a circle inside. So you couldn't go and download the PDF of this graphic anymore. Is, is it because, like, biblical theologians and, and scholarship has finally proven all of these arguments false and the Bible is now totally true and everyone believes it? No. I, I found a website that took Sam's graphic and have taken it to another level. You can now see the exact same graphic that you just saw with all of the red arcs, and you can now hover your mouse over those arcs, and up will pop the different Bible references telling you the errors. And as you scroll down the page, they begin listing more and more problems that they see with the Bible. There are people absolutely convinced. That's why you've got people putting contradictions on the back of a shirt. People are wearing this around saying, look, see, all of these contradictions. And these are just from the Gospels. This is just about Jesus. I know you can't read it, but trust me, there's, they have all these arguments up there. I mean, you can go to, on social media and find people arguing that the Bible's fake and false. You've got people pushing forth Bart Ehrman books, saying how, how the Bible is, is just, it, it's this work of, of humans. It's not this inspired word of God. So even though a lot of people debunked much of what Sam Harris had in that original graphic, there are still people pushing forward this idea that the Bible is full of contradictions. All right, now, why am I talking about this? Because today, we're going to see a Bible contradiction. It, we're going to see something that, that it, it, it's a quandary. There, there seems to be a, a discrepancy, something that just doesn't make sense. But the thing about this Bible controversy that we're going to see, it, it's not going to be pushed forward by Sam Harris. It's not going to be found on the back of a t-shirt or on some website. This biblical controversy, this, this contradiction that we're going to see today, it, it's actually put forward by Jesus. But rather than cause this contradiction to cause your faith to crumble, I, I believe that this contradiction may actually cause you to come to a place where you trust God and his scripture even more. The contradiction is found in Mark chapter 12. So if you are a first-time guest with us, we have been working through the book of Mark for quite a while now. We, we take breaks every so often. In fact, we're getting ready to, to take a break after the baptism service. We're going to do a series on the church, and then we've got a, a different plan for this fall. So we'll be away from Mark for a while. Uh, but we've been back in Mark now for a bit, and we've gotten ourselves up to Mark 12. And, and today we get to see this kind of controversy, this contradiction that Jesus brings up. And his listeners are not going to be able to answer it. But today, we're going to answer it. We're going to see that it really isn't a contradiction at all. And I'm hoping that as you begin to see why this is not a contradiction, it will actually help you right here in 2021 to realize that God is someone that can be trusted. So as we get ready to read this, uh, let me open in prayer, and then we will read verses 35 through 37. All right, Heavenly Father, we uh, now are coming to your scriptures while many, many people have tried to discount it, uh, they don't believe it, they see it as a work of fiction, your word has remained true. It has lasted through many centuries, through many different cultures. No matter what attack humans bring to it, it always seems to stand. And so that's why I pray that today you would open our hearts and minds. Some of us here, we know the scriptures, we love the scriptures, we want to learn. So open our hearts and our minds now to what you want to teach us or to remind us of. But Lord, anyone who's listening to this, that, that maybe is struggling with the scriptures, 
they're not sure if they can trust it, if it's not to be believed, would you today help them to find a place where they realize that it is true and they can trust not only the scriptures, but ultimately you, the author of it? So God, I do not pretend as, as one voice to be able to communicate this perfectly and purely to everyone who's listening. So God, that's why I just pray that your Holy Spirit would do what only he can do to touch the minds and hearts of those that you've brought to connect with you through this scripture passage on this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we are going to just look at three verses. Um, I, though, this week have found these three verses to be kind of like a uh, a really rich dessert. Have you ever had a bite of a dessert and you're just like, whoa, that is rich. And in that moment, you're like satisfied with just that one bite. And yet it's so amazing, so overwhelming. You find yourself wanting to go back for more. That's how these three verses have been for me. So join me, Mark 12, start in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, hopefully you see the contradiction there. It's right there in verse 37. Jesus points out, all right, so David is going to have this son, but this son he's also calling his Lord. I'm going to explain here in a little while why that is an actual contradiction. But before we get there, we need to kind of see the scene. We need to set the stage, if you will. Uh, the, the setting for today's story actually begins all the way back at the end of Mark 11. Uh, it was a long time since we've been there. The, these last few weeks, we've been only in Mark 12. But at the end of chapter 11, in verse 20, I mean, yeah, chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples walk into the temple. We assume they're there maybe to worship. Maybe Jesus is going to teach. But before he can really do much of anything, he gets verbally accosted by some of the chief priests, the Pharisees, and some scribes. They, they immediately launch in on him. And they start saying, who gives you the authority to do these things, to teach these things? And so what we saw was Jesus kind of responded to the question. Like, well, okay, I'll answer your question, but answer one of mine first. So he gives them a question, they refuse to answer, and so Jesus is like, all right, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not answering yours. And that led into chapter 12, where we see Jesus teach a parable about the Pharisees. Through his little story with a point, he exposed their plans to have him arrested and killed, and this angered them. So they need to now try to get Jesus canceled. And so that's where we saw three weeks ago, a conversation breakout between Jesus and some, uh, some Pharisees and Herodians. The Pharisees and Herodians did not see eye to eye on a number of issues. But the one thing they agreed upon, they did not like Jesus. He was a threat. And so they come to him with this brilliant plan to trap him. Ask him, do we pay taxes to Rome? Because if he says yes, then the Pharisees are going to go and tell all of the Jewish people who don't like Rome. And therefore, he's going to now be canceled. However, if he says, no, don't pay taxes, the Herodians are going to go tell the Romans. The Romans are going to have Jesus arrested, and he's now going to be eliminated and removed. This is the perfect question. But we saw Jesus slip out of it. As they set their verbal trap, Jesus just said, show me a coin. Whose image is on it? Caesar. All right, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. And what we saw through that conversation was what bears the image of God? Humans. So therefore, humans are to give themselves to God, just as we are to give coinage to the government to pay our taxes 
Well, standing there listening to all of that were the Sadducees, a different sect of, of Judaism. And they, they saw Jesus slip out of that trap, and they thought, those Pharisees, they don't know what they're doing. We got the perfect thing. So they put together this little logic puzzle, this verbal thing of, oh, Jesus, um, you claim that there's a resurrection. Well, there's this woman. She's married to all these different guys. When she's in the resurrection, whose husband is she? Oh, it can't be solved. They got him. And Jesus begins to say, oh, you guys don't even know the scriptures. And he begins this theological lesson and shows that he has a better knowledge of the scriptures than even some of these Jewish leaders. Well, standing there listening to these two conversations is a scribe. That breaks out into a third conversation. The scribe blurts out, Jesus, what, what is the greatest commandment in all of the scriptures? This was a debate raging about. And so Jesus answers, and the guy is so overwhelmed, he responds, and Jesus looks at him and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And in that moment, finally, it says in verse 34, and after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. They had tried so hard to trick him. And yet, he knew the scriptures better than them, and he knew the hearts of men. And he was able to answer all of their questions. He came out of every single one of those conversations looking amazing. And in that moment, they suddenly realized, we can't do it. We can't trap this guy. We can't trick him. And they finally find themselves dumb. They can't speak. They're mute. And as the silence kind of comes over the crowd... Finally, Jesus can do what he meant to do in chapter 11 as he comes into the temple, and that is to teach. However, Jesus, as he begins to teach there, it says in verse 35, in the temple, he's just been asked a bunch of questions. By what authority do you do these things? Should we pay taxes to Rome? What's the greatest commandment? And I think Jesus thinks, you know, let's have some fun. I'm going to ask them a question. And his question is right there, verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, when we use the word son, we are typically referring to the direct male descendant of a mom and a dad. But in Jesus's culture and in several other cultures, a son is any male descendant. So for instance, in this, this verse, Jesus used, talks about David, the famous King David. David had a number of sons. One of his most famous sons was Solomon. Another one was Absalom. Right? Those would be the sons of David. However, if Solomon had sons, those sons would also be considered the son of David. Any male descendant, even going as far as like 14 generations, which according to Matthew in his genealogy could lead to Jesus. And so Jesus could be considered a son of David. But Jesus is not just here to talk about family trees. He uses a very key word in his question. That is the word Christ. The word Christ could also be translated Messiah, just simply means anointed one. The Jewish people believed that God would send this anointed one, this Messiah, who would rule, who would reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation. They needed this guy to be a king like David. And as they studied through the scriptures, they saw he would be a prophet like Moses, as it says in Deuteronomy 18.15. That he would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, as it says in Psalm 110, verse 4. And that he would also be a king in the line of David, as promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. And so the people were looking for this great leader who expressed great wisdom that, that they would want to follow. Because he was going to throw off Rome, reestablish Israel, and the priests and, and rabbis were teaching this to everyone. And so they were looking for this Messiah. 
So they knew to get someone like that, he has to come out of the line of David. He has to be the son of David in order to have that right to be on the throne of Israel. So Jesus puts this forth to them. All right, he calls him, uh, you know, the, the Christ has to be from the son. And so then David, I mean, Jesus goes and quotes from David from Psalm 110. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This comes directly from 110, Psalm 110, verse 1. I learned this week that Psalm 110 is the most referred to psalm in all of the New Testament. 33 times the New Testament authors either point to or allude to Psalm 110. I think most of that is probably from the book of Hebrews, because as you'll see here in a moment, verse 4 is what gets talked about in Hebrews. But this, this psalm, because it's so famous and it's only seven verses, I thought it'd be good for us to just take a moment and read through it. So if you know where Psalms are, feel free to flip there. If you not, you can just watch the screen and we will have it up there. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, Jesus quoted from verse 1 there. But if you look at the entire psalm, you see it's about a king. A a king who's going to bring peace, that he's going to defeat his enemies to the point that his enemies will be humbled and become like a footstool, you know, so he can kick back on his throne, put his feet up, you know, and enjoy a cold one as he gloats over his enemies. That's kind of the idea here. However, as it's talking about this powerful king, right there in verse 4 is this uh, verse that I said gets mentioned in in the book of Hebrews a, a, a bunch. It's that you will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so this king will also be a priest. And this confounded the Jewish people for a long time. But Jesus doesn't go to verse 4 to bring about this contradiction. He just goes even to verse 1. He stops right there at verse 1. And even the very first phrase is where he makes his point. Verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now in the Hebrew, the first Lord is the word Yahweh. I'm just going to let you know I am not a Hebrew scholar. All right, I do not know the language. I cannot read it at all. I use all sorts of Bible tools, so I'm not like way smarter than you. All right, You can find these things out for yourself. But it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is the unpronounced name of God. The Jewish people saw God as being so holy, you would not even dare to utter his name. And so they actually took the the, the word Yahweh and they gave it a different pronunciation so that they wouldn't profane the beautiful holy name of God. So they called him Jehovah. But it was pronounced Yahweh. And this is what David says, the Lord, the Yahweh. Now as king, 
he would be kind of over everything, except maybe God. You'd think, okay, yeah, over, over him is Yahweh. But notice what he says here. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, the second Lord here is the Hebrew word Adon. It's a general word for Lord. Uh, it, it, it was a word that could be used for a dad as the Lord of his household. It could be used for a king or a prince as Lord over the, the kingdom. Uh, a captain who's Lord over their army. The word Adon was even used of God. Sometimes it was put as Adonai, but it would still be used just generally of God himself. Now, some people had questions, all right? So here's David saying, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, my Adon, who is this Adon? Oh, well, some people said, well, this is just David being poetical. He's the Adon. I mean, because he's king of Israel. However, I disagree. Because Jesus, I mean, David did not see himself as a priest. And yet down in verse four, this king is going to be a priest. So I think he's referring to someone else. Who is this Adon? This was the contradiction. This was the problem. Because when Jesus is talking to them, he says, who do people say that the Christ is? In Matthew's version of, this, of our story today in Mark 12, Jesus just puts it forward to them. Who do people say the Christ is? Just like that, the answer is, well, the son of David. And that's what Jesus says. Okay, oh, but wait a second. If the son of David is the Messiah, then why does David call him my Lord? Because you see, in Jewish thought, they were an honor culture. And honor always went down I mean, sorry, the honor always went up the family tree, not down. You always gave honor to the dad, the granddad, the great-grandfather. It was not the other way. And so this was the quandary. This was the contradiction. If there had been biblical scholars in Jesus' day, this would be the verse that they took, put on the back of the t-shirt. This is the verse that would make it in the little website and, and they're one of the colored arcs. This is one of the verses that they looked at and go, look, it, it doesn't work. You, the son cannot be the Lord. Like, this is proof that the Hebrew Bible is a fake and false. You don't believe it. It doesn't work. And yet, as Jesus is talking about this, he seems quite comfortable. He seems to be doing just fine. I almost feel like Jesus, as he's teaching, has a little, like, smirk on his face. How is Jesus so comfortable with this biblical contradiction? I think two things. Number one, I think it's because Jesus does not attribute these words from Psalm 110 to just David. I think he attributes them to God. If you have your Bible still open there to Mark 12, look at verse 36. D Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit... Christians believe that God wrote the Bible through human authors. Now, he did not put those human authors into a trance. It wasn't like demon possession and they were not aware of their faculties. No, God used their personalities, their quirks, their experiences, their backgrounds. He used all of them, and yet he accomplished what he needed to. He said exactly what needed to be shared. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he's writing a letter to Timothy, his protege, 2 Timothy 3.16, he says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, some translations say it's, it's inspired by God. But I think in our, our minds, oh, you know, well, I was inspired to write that song. 
Like her beauty made me inspired to write a poem. No, it's not just that it was inspired by God. Oh, I, I really like God, so I think I'm going to write these things down. No, it's God breathed. Just like God breathed life into Adam, he breathes life into the scriptures, using these human authors, all of their foibles, all of their quirks, to perfectly pin what needs to be said to the people of that time and to allow it to go through the generations. So Jesus, as God the Son, was there as they were writing the scriptures through David. This is why Jesus, as it said in Mark 1, we saw way, way, way back when, said that Jesus taught with authority. Well, the first portion of the word authority is author. Jesus knows these scriptures in and out because he is the author of it. He is the authority over it. And so that's why Jesus can sit there and bring forward this contradiction and smile to himself because he knows, because he wrote it through David. The other reason Jesus is so incredibly comfortable in this moment is because he has a different perspective. You see, as he's talking to his first century Jewish audience, they're thinking with a first century Jewish mind. And in first century Judaism, it made no sense for David to call his son my lord. That, that, that was the quandary. They, they just couldn't figure it out. So they, they avoided it or they, they tried to, you know, work their way around it. And Jesus just can smile because he sees it completely different. He's not limited by his first century Judaism because he is God the son. And he steps back and he sees the whole because Jesus knew from the very beginning that he, God the Son, would take on human flesh in the line of David, that he would go with to live a sinless life, but go and die a sinner's death. But by then, rising from the dead, showing that he has authority over all things, so therefore he is truly David's Lord. So to Jesus, there is no contradiction here. The Jews couldn't see it. This is the kind of thing that could cause their faith to crumble. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, this shouldn't cause your faith to crumble. This should actually cause your faith to grow stronger. Because it's been God's plan all along that the great King David would have a descendant who would be the Lord. So what should you take away from this? I mean, that, that's great. T tantalize the, the mind, you know, oh, wow, I hadn't seen it that way. But like, how does this change your Monday? Oh, I think the two reasons that Jesus is so incredibly comfortable should become your two things that you walk away with today. So the first thing I want to give you today is this. Number one, trust the scriptures. Just as the Jews of Jesus' day couldn't wrap their mind around this little contradiction, if we are honest, there are times we come across things that make us uncomfortable, that we just can't quite wrap our minds around. Right now, in my own personal Bible reading, I'm working through Revelation. Right? There, there are some things that I just, I just don't get. I mean, yeah, I can, I can you know, picture things in my mind, but yet I, I know that there's something there that I just can't quite grasp. But God gets it. He's already seen the end. So he can write these things through John's hand. When, when everything's said and done, I'll be able to look back at Revelation, and I have a feeling I'll probably want to take a hammer and go, duh, it's right there. How could I not see that? But right now, I, I can't wrap my hand, mind around it. There, there's times where things happen in life, and we want to go one direction, and then we read something in the scriptures, and it makes us really, really uncomfortable. 
Like, for instance, Jesus' teaching on divorce. I, I, that makes a lot of us uncomfortable, me included. And so, you know, our culture's trying to go one way, and here's, here's Jesus' teaching, which seems to kind of go the other way. Or, or how about the pressure from our culture to believe certain things, to, to do certain things, and yet there's stuff in the scriptures that seem to run counter to that. What, 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 do you, what do you do? My encouragement is trust the scriptures. Because you see, cultures have been changing throughout all of history. Feelings are incredibly fickle. And yet, despite all of those changes, God's word has remained. There are things right now that our culture says, this is fine, this is good, this is, this is great. 40, 50 years ago, never would have said that, ever. And guess what? There are things right now that we as a culture believe 30, 40, 50 years from now, they're going to look at and go, man, what bumpkins. Those guys didn't know anything. Cultures change. And it's not just our culture. All cultures. You can start, pick a culture. You could find things in that culture that seem to line up with Scripture. And you would also find things that seem to run against it. So you cannot just go with culture. Because guess what? You try and go with culture, you're going to be out of date. You're going to miss the fad. It's going to move on. And so my encouragement is stick with the scriptures. The thing that has been there solidly, that's like an anchor that isn't blown about by the waves of culture. So trust the scriptures. That means when you feel like you're such a screw up, that God could never love you, trust the scriptures. Where it says that God loved you so much, he sent his one and only son to die for your sins. He loves you. Your sin does not repel him. As, De as Jake was saying in his opening prayer, God actually is drawn to us because of our sin. Because he does not want us to be mired in our sin. Jesus came to die for it. So he comes to us. So don't believe your heart when it says, no one can love me. Trust the scriptures. God loves you to infinity. Or how about when you feel alone? You feel like no one understands. The scriptures teach us that God is always with us. In fact, Jesus, the very last words he said on this earth were, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Trust the scriptures and what God has said there. So that means when the scriptures say that God will provide, trust him, even though the bank account says something different. When, when, when a, a certain relationship is not going the way you want, trust the scriptures that God is enough even when these things aren't going the way you want. Yeah, there's times where we feel like the Pharisees, the scribes. We, we, we can't wrap our mind around. These things just don't seem to make sense, whether in the scriptures or in life. But I'm telling you, because the scriptures have gone through every kind of weather, they will still be there for us tomorrow. So trust the scriptures. But that leads to number two. The reason I think we can trust the scriptures is because they're written by God. So therefore, we need to trust God. As I've already said, God is not limited in his perspective by time, by culture, by experience, by temptation. I mean, God just does not see things the same way we do. Yes, we are made in God's image. We are a reflection of him. But yet, we are still so utterly different than him. 
And so because his perspective is so much greater and broader, we need to trust him. Because so often we get stuck. All we can see is our little circumstances. And God's looking at it going, oh, dude, like you got to look beyond just right now. I, I have it all figured out. You need to trust him. Now, I, I'm not going to lie. Trusting God is hard. So hard. And so I, I am not going to pretend that here within a, a 35, 40-minute sermon that I, I'm going to quell all of your questions and, and, and everything's going to be just A-OK. God works on a much different timetable. If I were God, I would do things differently and screw it all up. He knows what he's doing. Trust him. So w- when you aren't getting the job, trust him. Because you might have a better one in mind. When, when you can't seem to find that right spouse or you can't seem to have kids, trust him. He may know exactly what he's doing and who he's bringing into your life at a later date. When, when changes are happening all around you, trust him. Because it says in Psalm 139, no matter where we go, God is there with us. So you are not alone. You're not weathering this by yourself. So trust him. But Aaron, if I'm supposed to trust God, why did he let me go through abuse? If I'm supposed to trust this God, why was I abandoned? If, I, if I'm supposed to trust God, then why did he leave so many questions unanswered? I don't know. I, I, I can't answer that specifically. Maybe if we sit down and I hear more of your story. But right now, what's happening in your heart, I, I can't say, oh, this is it. But I can tell you one thing. That no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, that no matter what is happening in your life, no matter what has happened in your past, no matter what questions are still inside of you or the things you're hearing outside of you, the one thing I could tell you that, that would help you to still trust God is the gospel. That no matter what is happening around you, there is still one truth. God loves you so much that even though your sins separated you from him, Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on human flesh in the line of David to live a sinless life, but to go and die in the sinner's place. And by going to the cross, he paid for your sin so that you could come back into a relationship with your creator. That's enough. Now, let's just pretend, though. Let's pretend that God gives you nothing else the rest of your life. You're looking for a job right now, you don't get it. You're deep in debt, you die in debt. You, you want to have kids, God doesn't give them to you. Like everything, the, the thing that you've been longing for, let's just pretend God gives you none of it. But he's given you Jesus. That's enough. Because when you look at the cross, you see God's heart for you. He saw you sick in your sin. You were spiritually dead. And he loved you so much, he came for you to resurrect you, to bring you back into spiritual life so that you would have a relationship with him. You get God. And that is enough. 
That is why the gospel means good news. That is good news right there. But guess what? I have even better news. Because that is not all that God gives you. That when you put your faith in Christ, you don't just get the forgiveness of your sins. You don't just get a relationship with God. The scriptures teach us that we get the Holy Spirit. That, that, that it says in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is like a seal on our hearts. It's like God branding us, saying, this one is mine. And that power, that same power that raised Christ from the dead, now dwells in us. So God did not just say, okay, I, I've forgiven your sins. That's good. No, he like comes and says, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to live in you. My Holy Spirit is yours. But it doesn't even stop there. He's also given you the church. He's given you a church family. He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ. Here in Iowa, when things get hard, we try to buck up and do it ourselves. I just don't want to be a burden on anyone else. All right, that may be Iowan, but that's not biblical. God gave us one another. We are to help each other through. Life is hard in case you haven't noticed. And so we are to help each other, love each other, speak to each other, life to help each other walk this thing. So we are not alone. God gave us the church. <laughs> but that's not all. God has also given us his scriptures. We just talked about how we can trust them because they have been around. So let's read them. God is still communicating to us. So let's study it. Let's read it. Let's get into it. And God doesn't even stop there. It says in Ephesians 1.3 that he has given us every spiritual blessing under heaven. Every spiritual blessing. When Jesus died on the cross, God did not just give us forgiveness of sins and call it good. He has poured everything out upon you. And when you just get caught in your little bubble, get caught in your circumstances, yes, they're hard. Yes, it's awful. Yes, I wish I could just change it. I don't want to belittle it. But what I want you to do is to step out of the cloud, step back and get a broader perspective and realize God has given me so much. And so it doesn't matter what those people say about me. It doesn't matter what's going on right now. It doesn't matter how empty my bank account is. It doesn't matter on those things because my God is on high. He loves me. He's for me. He's with me. He's in me and he is surrounding me. So so you can trust God through all of it because he loves you and he's for you. And so when you then come to those contradictions, you might not be able to answer it, but you do know the one who can. And that makes all the difference in the world. So Heavenly Father, I just pray you would help us to be these kind of people, that we would be people who trust that we would trust your scriptures, that we would trust your Holy Spirit, that we would trust your plan, that we would trust your instructions, that we would trust you more than our feelings, more than the voices around, more than what our culture tries to say, that we would trust you first and foremost. God, we confess that that kind of trust might be easy to say. It's another thing to do. That is why, Heavenly Father, I ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you administer to the hearts of your people right now that as they pray, 
you would bolster their trust. That they would see that you have had a plan from long ago. That just as your plan was for Jesus to come through the line of David and yet also be David's Lord, you also have a plan for us. You know the days that are ahead. So God, help us to trust you, to trust your perspective. Reminded of what you wrote, God, in Romans 8, that you are working out all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Father, this room is filled with people who love you. Online right now are people who know you. Help them to trust you because you are working out all of these things, the good, the bad, even the evil, that the things that Satan has intended for our destruction, you can work for our good. So God, help us to trust you in each day, in each hour. But God, in the moments where we struggle to trust, we don't want to believe the scriptures, we don't want to believe your presence, we don't want to believe your instructions. Help us to look at the cross to see your heart for us, to see what you did for us, to see how you have redeemed us. And help us to see that, God, you are enough. So, God, I pray that in these next holy moments you would just minister. And as we pray, we would just have confidence that you will hear our prayers. That as we sing, you would be just absolutely exalted. And as we partake of the communion elements, we would remember your body, Jesus, which was broken for us, your blood, which was shed for us. And as we take those elements into our bodies, we're saying your story is our story. Our identity is found completely in you. And because of that, we can trust you. So God, do what you need to in these next moments in the hearts and minds of your people, the person who does not know you, that right now you'd be calling them to become your son or your daughter. For those that do know you, that they would just extend their trust of you yet again. May this be just a, a time of healing, of you doing what only you can do. So Lord, we now do this for your glory, for our joy, and in remembrance of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.